And now it's time to fl play my flay. <laughs> it's time to flay my favorite game. <laughs> uh, I don't like an episode that other people do. This actually came up recently from my perspective, obviously, with an episode of TNG, which is still going live as of me recording these, obviously. I'm not going to say the episode, but yeah, several people are like, no, I like this one, and I'm, I'm just the crazy person who didn't care for it. I'll give you a hint. Narration. So, this is, uh, I mean, it's not a bad episode, but there's just a part of it that really drags it down. And honestly, if that part was better done, I would actually list this as among the favorites. Not up the, at the tier of, like, the absolute bests, but still in the, the VHS list. I do have to give credit for this episode. This is written by Kuhn, and, you know, it works. And it's directed by Sedensky. Okay. This is also when we really start to see some of the budget issues of Season 2. I know, the second episode, right? The sets, all two of them, are... Well, let's just say they were starkly limited in what they could do. In fact, they actually used custom lens... Uh, not custom, wide-angle lenses and very, very carefully crafted camera angles and strategic placement of rocks to hide the fact that the set was actually tiny. It was this dinky little area. I've actually seen pictures of it. It's insane how much they managed to make this look like a, a giant planetscape when it's probably about the size of my apartment. Maybe a little bit smaller now that I'm thinking about it. So good credit on that. You know, good camera work. This is also the introduction of some more mi uh, mythos building, world building. Zephram Cochran is introduced, the man who introduced the who designed the way to get the warp barrier, and his inclusion in the franchise. He will, of course, be someone who comes up several times in the future, most notably and obviously in the movie First Contact. And as a quick aside, while I don't necessarily not see it, I, I kind of prefer James Cromwell's approach to Cochran. Anywho, yawn attack. Oh, so there's Miss Commissioner, what's her face? And she's like, no, I'm dying, because I have this horrible illness, which is incredibly rare, and I'm super pissed at you for, for you know, not getting into this. And it's like, okay. And then they find out that there's this energy being, it's totally not the companion, coming at them at warp speed. Now, okay, I try not to be super negative about effects, so I'm going to skip over the fact that it actually looks like it's meandering toward them at the speed of turtle, but let's ignore that, okay? That means one of two things. Either... They are traveling at warp speed, and it is intercepting them at warp speed, or they are scanning it when it's at warp speed, which is pretty impressive considering the fact that the shuttles on the old TOS super suck. One of the things I've brought up several times is how shuttles are an incredibly useful tool in modern Trek, a tool that the writers constantly forget about, a tool that has its own scanners, its own warp drive in some cases, most cases, and its own weapons array and its own shield system. And it's, just, it's got all sorts of things going for it. It's a shuttle. And the, the writers constantly forget that. I just find it interesting that this shuttle has these scanners that can detect something at warp, considering how inconsistent the Enterprise's scanners are about that. Just but no, what's probably supposed to mean is that the shuttle itself is was warped. But at the same time, that's almost weirder to think about, that the shuttles in the TOS era can go to warp. I'm not sure which it is, and again, I mean, yes, I could pull up the technical manual, I could pull up the, the wiki or whatever and actually look it up, but my point is, going just off of the episodes, I find myself kind of raising an eyebrow at this, trying to figure out exactly how is what and where. 
So they go down, and there's Cochran, and he talks a lot, and they recognize him, but not really, and they're just kind of like, huh, it sounds familiar. I can, bl- I can forgive them not recognizing him. I mean, he doesn't look anything like James Cromwell. But memeing aside, the pictures that are in the history books are probably Cochran, you know, in his 60s, 70s, and 80s range, right? After first contact, after he's already established connections with the Vulcans, after the space programs have already started, etc., etc., so, yeah, no, I, I could forgive them not recognizing him, especially not on sight. But the problem is Cochran is a really unique name that should have made, immediately made them go, I'm willing to let that one slide, too, because he didn't exist before this episode. And that is basically the reason I'm willing to let that slide. It's worth noting it only takes two scenes total for them to realize who he is, so, you know, it's not like it's a big deal. This then leads to the introduction of the Companion, another godlike entity. What is with this frick? What is with TOS and godlike aliens? They're just everywhere. Holy crap. And what's really weird is the Companion has super inconsistent powers. Okay, so she can maintain a nice atmosphere. Maybe. They never actually say if she's actually doing that. She can uh, keep someone healthy forever, except when they're sick as we demonstrate with the uh, administrator commissioner lady who's dying. Can't do anything for her, but but we can keep you healthy forever, unless you're already sick. Sure. And they also she also has the ability to go at warp away from the planet temporarily, but has to go back to it. That actually doesn't bother me that much. And can make stuff out of other stuff. <laughs> you know, matter, energy, matter, matter thing, the Trelane thing. I don't know. It's just it's just kind of a grab bag of superpowers. Whatever. Maybe she's stronger here, but then again, that the one thing that really irritates me is she can't heal the commissioner. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Just just keep that in the back of your mind. Either way, Kirk appeals to Cochrane's sense of wonder and exploration when it comes to trying to get him to con- to convince him to leave. Right now. On the one hand, this is awesome, because it's kind of that Star Trek ideal. You notice there's even a bit of the theme going when Kirk is talking about how huge the galaxy is, how many planets we've found, and how many species we've found. And there's so much wonder and amazement out there, it's incredible. The thing is, I'm pretty sure at this point in history, Cochrane would be super jazzed to find a Game Boy that has Tetris in it. No offense to anybody who's a fan of Tetris, but I mean, the Game Boy Tetris? Yeah, you're going to get bored of that in two hours, right? But it's something... Go without anything for a century and a half, and yeah, you're going to just be like, oh my god, it's it's checkers. You know, it, although you could play checkers with, you know, rocks and stuff like that. I've actually done that. So, you know, it's a chessboard. Now you can do that chess. It's it's anything, right? It's anything is the point, as I'm destroying my own argument here. So it's it's hard to take it seriously. This is also when the episode starts to lose me. So up until now, okay, they found Cochran. There's this alien being, whatever. And, you know, she's fond of him. We don't actually find out that she's a she yet. <laughs> I'm going to touch the line, gender is a universal constant. But there's this bit where, you know, they, they inter- interact with it and they need to get off the ship and they, they've got this war thing they're trying to deal with. So it's like, okay, we've got two ticking clocks both kind of working down. Let's get the hell out of here. And then they see Cochran and the companion interact and they're like, oh my god, it's love! Okay, it's better written than that because Kuhn is actually a good writer, but that is effectively how the conversation goes. Jim, do you see that? I do. It's love. That's not a pet or a specimen. That's love. Now, okay, real talk for a second. It is love. From what we understand, the companion does love the um, 
Cochrane. <laughs> Honestly, probably in a non-romantic sense, but still in a genuine sense. That's that's real, and we know that with the advantage of hindsight. What I find dubious is they presume this from nothing at all. It's like me looking... I, I, I can't even come up with a good analogy here. They, 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 they just look at nothing. The companion intersects over Cochrane. Nothing else happens, and they're like, oh, It's love. Where do they get this information from? I mean, I know the truth. The answer is they get it from the script. But all of them agree on this, which is the really weird part, all three of them. Speaking of all three of them, so Spock, McCoy, and Captain go on a mission together, which might be the dumbest possible party configuration you could ever come up with, especially on a shuttle that's going to be some time away, several hours away from the Enterprise. But ignoring that for a second, it makes perfect sense. Hear me out for a moment. I've talked a lot about the big three and how that's a thing in, you know, TOS's era. And, I mean, it's a thing in every Star Trek, but it's really been a thing in TOS in Season 1. You'll notice that for several scenes, this the camera shifts over to the Enterprise. Now, at first I was like, why is it doing this? It almost feels unnecessary to follow the Enterprise's attempts to catch them. And at first I thought it was just another rote thing, which Star Trek does every now and again, just kind of pads out the runtime. Then I realized what's happening is we're getting cut character scenes for the guys who aren't part of the big three. Uhura, Scotty, and Sulu are actually the major characters who all have a, a decent number of lines and actually have some freaking screen time to do something. I say without hyperbole that this might be the third or fourth most screen time Sulu or Uhura have gotten since the beginning of the show. Thus we now see the point. One of the the, the, the commandments from on high when it came to season two was that people who are not the big three need more screen time. So in the basis of that, if nothing else, I'm a little more in favor of it. I still think they could have done something more with it, but at the very least, Scotty does demonstrate that he is, once again, a competent commander. There's always one competent commander in Star Trek shows who's usually not the person who's in charge. I mean, not to imply anything, it's just interesting to think about, right? <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. Uh, anyway, so we get some scenes with them, woo, and then we get the Universal Translator. I don't think this is technically a first, but I believe this qualifies as the first Universal Translator. It's been mentioned a few times. They've even specifically brought up your speaking English in several scenes in several episodes. But I believe this is the very first time they've actually used it as a specific way to communicate with a truly alien being. I mean, even with the Horta, what did they use? A mind meld, right? So just interesting to see this. I, I wonder if this is what ended up inspiring how the Universal Translator would be used in every show after this. So, up until now, the episode's awesome. I'm going to go ahead and sidebar for just a second, because I have to talk about a book called Federation. You ever read it? If you have not, allow me to professionally and personally recommend it. It's actually my favorite Star Trek book. Um, I know that's not saying much because I didn't get much into the Star Trek novels, as several of my commenters will point out repeatedly, but I do highly recommend it. It's an awesome book. But one of the reasons I bring it up is because of the three narratives it follows, one of them is Zephram Cochran. And it extensively covers both his life and lead up to, you know, what, what at the time was First Contact, because the movie wasn't out yet. And then it covers him interacting with the companion and then their adventures afterwards and just all sorts of stuff. And I'm just staring at it like, okay... That's awesome. It's hard to di dis 
distance that and my knowledge of the characters and, and the backstory there from the episode I'm watching because I've read that book so many times. It's so dog-eared. Like the back, that back thing is almost not even, the back uh, cover is almost not even attached anymore. <sighs> Anyways, so then he mentions he doesn't like the idea of being a Judas goat. How many of you know what a Judas goat is? Go ahead and look it up. <laughs> I'll just tell you. I'll save you the Google trip. A Judas goat is the goat that obeys directions and basically serves as a leader, helping to herd other goats into the slaughterhouse so they can be chopped up and eaten. The Judas goat gets to live, sometimes. Which is funny, because I don't think the Judas goat even has an appreciation for the concept of being bribed like that, but whatever. Anyways, so this then leads to the part of the episode which I really dislike. Cochran finds out that the companion is female and wigs the hell out over it. Uh, calls it her an it, is, says she's disgusting, says she, he doesn't want to live in a, in a society that has no notion of decency or morality, and calls her an inhuman monster. I wrote down each of those because what the hell, man? Chill out, dude. Jesus. <laughs> just just a little bit of a chill pill. And it comes out of absolutely nowhere, and it leads to something that actively pisses me off. This is what really drags the episode down for me. i got to stress that, because up until now I've been totally with it. And, I don't know, the idea of Cochran and the companion falling in love is actually kind of awesome to me. You know, no agenda or anything. I just, I just love the idea, no pun intended, of two beings who are completely different species forming that kind of emotional and mental bond regardless of physiology. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't. Maybe you disagree. That's totally cool. I'm not here to preach. It's just, I like that idea. I like that idea of, you know, the possibility of that kind of romance blossoming, you know? This episode effectively torpedoes that idea completely. Even though several people, including uh, Miss Fontana, said, oh, it's amazing. No, that's not what's on the screen. Because what happens is Kirk then spends some time... I, I skipped over the part where they try to force... to, to, to destroy the companion. That didn't work out super well. Uh, anyways. <clears throat> so they try to communicate with her, and they try to convince her using the Universal Translator. You know, the side of this side of paradise argument. We need obstacles to overcome, and he will die if he is left here. And At first, I was like, really? I mean, don't mistake me. I do think that stim mental stimulus is mandatory for human existence, but he takes some very weird strategies in how he tries to convince her. At no point does he do anything that I would consider to be a convincing argument. He, it's, it's actually really pathetic for Kirk, given how much he is well known for convincing people to do things. That's even up until now, by the way, even through season one stuff. He's done that several times. So he just kind of meanders his way through this thing, and it doesn't really work. He even mentions later that it's a tactic. He admits it's a tactic because he is trying to convince her of the hopelessness of it so that she will, in the love that he presumes that she has, sacrifice of herself in order to save Cochran so they can get the heck off of here and save, you know, <laughs> save the commissioner. I forgot her name. This is a good time to mention that this also feels like a false dilemma. You realize that you don't have to be together 24-7, right? I mean, you could leave for a bit and come back. He could leave for a bit and come back. Maybe bring some video games or something to work on, rather than just sitting around in this hut being bored for the rest of his life. 
just food for thought, you know. There's other options here. This is not a binary situation, is what I'm trying to say. Anyways. <clears throat> but then this leads to... Okay, first it leads to something really cool. I want to give credit to Mr. Sinensky because apparently he's the one who came up with it uh, on the fly. So the scarf that Commissioner's been wearing is actually the same pattern that they end up using for the alien. And so she ends up holding up the scarf and looking through it to see him. It's a really touching moment, and it's it, it's a it, they don't even say anything. It's just this nice idea of that kind of transference thing, you know, something similar to what happened in Cat's Paw, actually. A truly alien mind is now perceiving things through sensations they're not used to. And so she sees him through the scarf to kind of get something close to how she's used to seeing him, to try and understand who she's looking at. You know, just, it's a nice little moment, and it's this great little thing. And it's probably the best moment in the whole episode, in my opinion. Which is funny, because it's not in the script. Like I said, it was, they came up with it on the fly. He came up with it on the fly. But then the episode pisses me off. And I quote, Now that I see her, touch her, I know that I love her. That completely torpedoes everything I was talking about earlier, about how cool the idea is of him loving her, and her loving him. Because the only reason he says this now... Watch the episode, you'll see what I mean. His attitude just goes from, I'm totally cool with the companion, to, oh, I'm disgusted by the companion, to, oh, she's got a body now, damn! And that's the, the arc of the episode, and it's just aggravating. Like, the only way he could ever possibly love her is because now he can have sex with her. Or, now he can actually touch her, interact with her. He flat out says touch. Now, he flat out says see. Only because she is a beautiful woman can he actually find himself to love her. That irritates me, and it completely destroys any of the, the goodwill that the previous parts of the episode brought up. In my opinion, I look forward to be being proven amazingly wrong by you guys. But before you tear me to shreds, I want to share one thing personally, okay? Now, you never heard this from me. But it is my personal opinion that a good relationship ha should have a healthy sexual component. That there should be genuine physical attraction between the two people. And then that should help to get the rest of the stuff going. Not the only thing. Not the sole focus. Not even the primary focus. You know, the, the, the mental connection, the emotional connection, the, the greater bond is something that I feel is more important. But I do think a healthy physical attraction is part of a healthy relationship. So, in the episode's defense, I could see it if we rewrote it and he was acting differently. Because both his acting portrayal, which could be just on the actor, and the dialogue does not support this idea. But, if it was, I love her but I could never be with her because he needs that physical attraction, to now I have the component I was missing, now I can actually consummate the love that I already have for her, and vice versa. That I would be substantially more okay with, and frankly would make a lot of sense. The problem is, as I mentioned, that's just not what's on the screen. This is another reason I mentioned Federation earlier, because the way Federation is presented basically gets across that idea I just mentioned. Uh, they don't say it outright, but the concept of the two being OTP, you know, one true loves, is absolutely an adamant point of the Federation, which is a constant throughout the book, every time Zephyrim is around a companion and vice versa. So it's not like there isn't something real underneath there. Food for thought. I am, as always, curious what you guys think. Oh, oh, oh what about that war? Ah, we'll sort it out. And then credits. 
I've I, I hate the 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 bridge conglomerate awkward joke not funny laugh sections of TOS and early TNG hate it but at the same time other than that this might be the worst ending to a TOS episode I can think of off the top of my head what about that massive war that was the main driving part of the plot nah Da, 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 da. It's just really, guys. Anyways, anyways, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I hope, as always, you've enjoyed. I will see you next time for I don't know what. I don't have the list in front of me, but hopefully we'll start getting to some good stuff in season two. Because so far I'm not super impressed, but I'm only two episodes in.